Welcome to the Athlete's First Performance Podcast, where two performance-minded physical therapists break down the evidence to improve overall health, movement, and performance for athletes and active individuals. Okay, episode 14 of the Athlete's First Performance Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about blood flow restriction, uh, what it is, how it's used, when to use it, and how it should be applied. Uh, James is going to be leading this one primarily because this is kind of his area of expertise, um, but we both are looking forward to talking about it, particularly since I'm going to have a little bit more access to it uh, in my new clinic. So James, how's everything going? Everything's good and looking forward to diving into this topic. So uh, let's get rocking and rolling. So we'll start with what is blood flow restriction training, otherwise known as BFR. So in basic terms, it's the use of a tourniquet applied to the upper arm or upper limb with the goal of reducing blood flow and oxygen into the muscle. There's two primary mechanisms of how blood flow restriction works. The main one is metabolic stress. So the act of blocking a certain percentage of arterial blood flow into the muscle and fully blocking venous return back to the heart, there is an accumulation of muscle metabolites. And the theory behind BFR is that the accumulation of these metabolites help drive muscle growth. The other main way in terms of building muscle strength hypertrophy is mechanical tension. And this is more so found in high load strength training. So mechanical tension has primary mechanisms of muscle growth through mechanotransduction, um, inducing muscle damage. It allows for increased fast twitch fiber recruitment and increased local hormone production. So that's pretty much the basic understanding of how and why blood flow restriction works. If you're interested in diving into the, the basic science behind it, I would definitely encourage you to take a look at some of the research that's just beyond this topic for right now. So BFR has become quite popular of late, particularly with post-op. And I feel like you see a lot of research, um, the patients that have had ACL reconstructions. When, when did this start to become popular? From my experience, Johnny Owens was one that was leading the way. But when did you first start hearing about it? I think in 2016, in our second or third year of PT school is really when that kind of popped up on the scene. So Johnny Owens helped develop BFR um, in the United States at the Center for the Intrepid down San Antonio with a lot of the military um, explosive type injuries that they were dealing with down there. And in 2016 is when it was becoming a little bit more mainstream stream in pro sports. So that's when I got first introduced to it. And then I took uh, the Owens recovery class um, during my residency in 2017. So that's really where I got a, a better understanding of BFR. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's kind of one of those things similar to like, and similar, not an obviously application or purpose, but sort of like dry needling where it's become very popular. It can almost be used as a marketing tool. Um, but in my opinion with blood flow restriction is that there is some significant science behind it, uh, why it works. And it's also an active treatment. So, um, that's one of the main reasons why I like it beyond the, just the physiological benefits you get from it. Um, but of course, anytime that we're talking about reducing blood flow to, a uh, an extremity, it can be a little bit, um, scary. So what are some of the safety, uh, rules, I guess, or maybe contraindications of using BFR, uh, in the clinic? People in Japan have been using BFR and 
specific type of tourniquets for thousands of years. And our surgeons here use a plethora of different tourniquets and fully occlude uh, patients for hours during surgery. So we know tourniquets are safe. So in terms of BFR in the clinic, some overarching like contraindications might be the patient having a history of like blood clotting or DVT, poor circulation, uh, uncontrolled hypertension, because we know the act of exercising plus the BFR affects the vascular system. So you want to make sure that the patient has controlled uh, blood pressure, uh, inadequate lymphatic system or history of varicose veins is also something that you have to take a look at, possibly diabetes if they have uh, poor circulation or poor uh, sensory to a specific region of the body. Easy bruising, pregnancy, that's always a contraindication and uh, active infection, cancer, or some type of renal compromise. So those are the big contraindications that you want to look for before applying BFR. And one of the things that a lot of people always ask are, oh, you're, you're applying a tourniquet, you're reducing blood flow. Is there a risk for blood clots? And that's, it's been shown to be safe as well as even showing evidence that using BFR stimulates a fibrinolytic system, which helps break down clots instead of produce clots. So if you're looking to begin using this in your rehab, um, I guess we could say, what type of patients are you looking to use it with? And then how would you educate them on the purpose of using it? So the two types of patients that come to mind are any type of post-op patient because they're load compromised, their tissues aren't able to handle actual load to build strength. An athlete or a patient needs to get back into sport, but there is some type of pain or tissue problem where they're unable to load and you need to get them back quickly. So the best way that I describe it to patients or athletes that I'm using it with is we're going to occlude some blood flow to your limb to be able to create a response to where we can build strength without actually aggravating your joint or tissue. So it simulates lifting heavy without actually lifting heavy. So in my experience, just using this on myself and with some patients, um, it's obviously quite uncomfortable, um, particularly once you get farther down and we can talk about this into the typical parameters of how many sets and reps you're doing. Um, are you, how are you kind of explaining to them the discomfort that they may feel and how uh, that's most likely important to have the actual result that you're going for. Yeah. So most people that we've worked with have had their blood pressure taken. So I pretty much say, Hey, it's just like a blood pressure cuff. It's going to pump up to fully occlude. And it's just going to feel like a lot of pressure in your arm or your leg. Um, you might have discoloration of your skin, which is completely normal just because we're blocking specific amount of blood flow, but it's just going to feel like a lot of pressure when you're going. And the goal is to actually exercise you until you fail certain reps. So the goal is to induce muscle failure so we can promote proper strength and hypertrophy in that specific muscle. And that's obviously going to be quite comfortable. And most of the people that you're probably using this on or relatively active. And I'm sure they felt that muscle burn that you're going to feel when you um, do BFR. Uh, is there anything else just in regards to maybe sensations that they're feeling while the cuff is on there, such as, you know, like numbness or tingling? Is there any concern there? Yeah. And that, that coincides with a lot of the equipment that you use. So we know in the research that there's certain type of cuff widths. So a uh, 
like a smaller cuff width is going to put more pressure on the skin. So you want to make sure that you're using wider cuffs um, to make sure that that pressure is getting spread out through a larger circumference area. Um, of course, you want to make sure that if the athlete or the patient's getting any type of numbness or tingling in the leg or the arm, that we need to uh, stop the movement and decrease the uh, the pressure and get their blood flow back. So those are the big things. Like it's going to feel like you're holding a wall sit for four minutes, but you, I don't want your feet to go numb. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then um, let's, let's go into, you're going to do it. You've educated them on why you're doing it, what they may feel. Um, so how are you going to set this up? And we can just kind of simplify this and say, let's, let's think we're going to be setting it up on a patient that just had ACL reconstruction. Yeah. So in terms of post-op, most of the research shows that um, two to three weeks after surgery is definitely safe, but it also depends on your surgeon. I know there's a lot of surgeons and pro athletes that use it day one after their surgery. So um, in the clinics that I've been in, the surgeons want us to wait a little bit just to make sure like in terms of the ACL after two weeks, they get their stitches out and swelling has calmed down a little bit. So that's typically when I start it. All right. So now that we have talked about the safety measures and uh, how you would educate the patient, let's say you're going to decide to use it. So how are you determining what pressure um, we'll just say in the lower extremity uh, to set the cuffs to? Yeah. So we know from the research that you want the limb occlusion pressure for the lower extremity to be, with, to be within 60 to 80%. And typically that first day, I'm going to use a lower limb occlusion pressure just so the athlete gets used to it and that you don't blow them up on that first day. So I really only have experience using the Delphi unit from Owens Recovery Science. So I'll just set the unit to 60 to 70% with that tourniquet all the way up on their upper limb as close to the hip as possible. So um, that's how I usually set it up. And for the first time, I probably won't put a whole bunch of load, especially if they're post-op, I'll do something with like, like a quad set or a straight leg raise without any load, uh, a lower limb occlusion pressure, just so they get used to it. Um, I know you have experience with using different units. How do you go about using and setting up the, uh, smart cuffs? Yeah. So I use the smart cuffs and essentially, obviously they don't have the constant monitoring of the pressure, uh, like the Delphi system. So um, it has a Doppler though. So what you do is you, to, we'll just talk the lower extremity again. So you're going to put the cuff on as high as you can up on the uh, leg, and then you're going to find their pedal pulse with the Doppler and it's, you'll be able to hear, um, the pulse go. And then you, I, I have them lay down and I give them the control to just pump up the cuff and they keep pumping it up until I can no longer hear the pulse with the Doppler. And then you figure out what that pressure is and then you multiply it by 0.8 or whatever percentage you're going for. And then that's essentially the occlusion. Now that's a nice way to do it, but it's also because you're doing it in a relaxed state. When you do the exercise, the pressure is obviously going to increase as the muscles contracted. So you don't really have a great gauge on what pressure you're setting or what the appropriate percentage would be. So that's when I think uh, just getting subjective feedback from the patient on their comfort level um, particularly if you're, you're hearing them say something about like numbness or things like that. Um, so that's definitely helpful to monitor, uh, with the smart cuffs, uh, that I've have had experience with the Delphi system a little bit. It's way easier, but you can probably get similar gains regardless. Um, I also have seen, uh, some clinicians kind of just wing it sort of, so they'll, they'll strap it up at whether they have cuffs or they have 
even I'm sure you've probably seen this in the performance world or the strength training world. People will have just like really tight, like resistance bands almost that they occlude with. Um, and then you just, they just basically crank it. And I know that there are, there is some things that say like, just to get a kind of a rating out of 10 of how tight it feels can be also somewhat helpful as far as figuring out if the tightness or the uh, occlusion is appropriate. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you have access to the Delphi system, that would be the way to go. Then in my experience, the smart cuffs are probably next. I'm sure there's other things in the market that I don't know about though. Um, yeah. So Delphi system, I would say, if you have it, use it. Um, so if we already, if we have the, the cuffs on and we have the appropriate occlusion, what are you going to be your parameters for setting up your, uh, first for your exercise load and volume? Yeah. And in terms of the sets and rep schemes, the typical set rep scheme is the first set of 30 and then three sets of 15. So it's 30, 15, 15, 15 with a 30 second break in between each set and using the Delphi unit, it's able to count the certain sets and reps. And the big thing that you want to make sure is that you actually keep the unit inflated that whole time. Um, so there, you're not deflating the unit during your rest break and that helps accumulate the metabolites and continues to uh, reduce the blood flow. And in terms of loading, I, th I feel like loading is the hardest part. We know that for the lower extremity and upper extremity that you want the load to be somewhere between 20 to 30% of their one RM. But obviously after, uh, ACL reconstruction, any type of post-op, you're not going to have them do a a one RM test right away. Um, so in terms of being a little bit more on the conservative side, there's a couple of things that you can do is like I said earlier, I'll usually start first day of BFR without any type of load, let's say like ACL. So usually doing like quad sets and straight leg raises at a lower percentage, like 60 to 70% without any load, just to make sure that they're able to feel comfortable with it and they gain confidence. If it's someone that's dealing with like patellofemoral pain syndrome and you're able to find like a 10 RM or a five RM on like a leg press or a leg extension, I'll definitely do that. If they're a little bit too irritable, I'll just do the same thing on their, their uh, healthy side. So I'll find a five RM or 10 RM. And then based off of their rep max test, I'll take 20 to 30% of that and start loading them up on that, uh, injured limb. Okay. So once you have them loaded up and you have the appropriate, um, like percentage of one RM set, how often are you going to do this during the week? Yeah. So we know from Brad Schoenfeld and muscle hypertrophy, um, literature that you want at least 10 sets per week of working a specific muscle to actually gain muscle strength and hypertrophy. So ideally two or three times per week using BFR, over a course of three to six weeks. Okay. And then how would you, and this is something I've always kind of wondered and, and sort of struggled with um, typically in kind of traditional strength and conditioning, if you're, if you're programming a strength workout, a lot of times you would begin with your larger compound movements and then kind of progress into your isolated movements, single joint movements. Um, with BFR, where are you programming this within their plan of care? Um, within their like that day's plan of care. Yeah, I think it all depends on what type of patient that you're working with and what your goals are for that patient. So 
let's go back to the example of acute ACL, two to three weeks post-op. After working on their range of motion, so like heel slides and working on their knee extension, I'll load them up with the BFR. So using BFR with different straight leg raises, terminal knee extensions, hip abduction, and that's going to be their main so-called like strength stimulus for the day. Um, and then as you continue to progress, say they're at week eight and they're able to start handling a specific load. So you're able to load them up with like a goblet squat or a split squat. You can start um, decreasing the amount of BFR that you're using and maybe use the high load with a compound movement, like a squat or a split squat, and then use BFR as more of the single joint strengthening for like knee extensions or hamstring curls. Okay. So kind of use it once they get farther out as a way to sort of, sort of burn them out, um, which makes total sense because you're not going to get nearly the amount of muscle soreness as you would if you were just loading every single movement, but you can still get similar strength hypertrophy gains. Um, so speaking of that, obviously at some point in their rehab, they're going to be able to start to handle increased uh, load or mechanical stress to the injured tissue. Um, so are you seeing, what is the research, I guess, saying, telling us about the difference between traditional higher load um, strengthening versus BFR? Yeah. So to take one quick step back, we know that BFR with light load is going to produce a lot more muscle strength and hypertrophy than low load. So we know that, um, there's more research coming out showing that BFR with low load actually will produce the same or even more muscle hypertrophy than high load strength training, especially early within like one to three weeks. And a lot of that is what they're thinking is because you can, have a higher frequency of low load BFR because you're not going to have that exercise induced muscle damage. You're not going to have that excessive fatigue like you would in terms of high load strength training. Um, but on the flip side, the sooner that you can get a patient to using high load, the better because high load strength training is going to produce some more muscle strength than BFR using low load. And then also tissue resilience. You're not going to get the, you just won't get the same sort of mechanical effect with, with the lower load, um, blood flow restriction. Mm -hmm. So before we go into a little bit of the, I guess, special topics in regards to other things that you could use BFR for, is there anything else you'd want to add to the BFR, uh, using it for strength and hypertrophy, particularly in patients that can't handle higher loads? Um, in terms of me personally, I like to keep it simple. On social media, there's a lot of times people are using BFR with these highly complex exercises. The whole goal of using BFR is to stimulate muscle strength and hypertrophy. So I have no problem using single joint exercises with BFR because my goal is to produce muscle strength and hypertrophy in the quads or the hamstrings or the calves. So the, the lower demands of the task with like a leg extension or a prone hamstring curl or a leg press, the easier it's going to be for me knowing, okay, I'm getting the desired effect that I want. I don't want to have them doing some type of single leg exercise, catching a ball with BFR. I think that's just, you're missing the boat there. So at the more simple that you can keep things using BFR, the better. Yeah. I think also too, when you get into a, a task, that's too complex, when they start to feel that, um, that, muscle fatigue or that deep muscle burn, 
they're going to tend to want to avoid that by compensating. So if it's a very complex task, you're probably going to see a lot more compensation when they start to feel that burn. And if they're isolated, like a knee extension or hamstring curl. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay. So if we go into some of the other special topics, um, I have seen BFR used uh, in a, for like aerobic training. Um, do you have an experience using it uh, in that capacity? So I've mostly used it for muscle hypertrophy and strength, like we were talking about earlier, just because of the setup of the clinics that I've been in, um, the number of units that we had and like the equipment that we actually had in terms of bikes and treadmills. I haven't used this a ton, but there is really good research in terms of using BFR with a low aerobic training. Um, so there's two studies that came to mind that I was able to find. One was a group of college basketball players. They were using BFR twice per day for six days per week over a two week time frame, And all they were doing is walking on a treadmill. So they had bilateral BFR on each leg. And what they would do would have five sets of three minutes of walking with one minute of rest between sets. And walking on the treadmill, they're keeping it between two and four miles per hour. And they were able to improve their VO2 max by 11%, uh, which I thought was pretty, pretty good. Like you're just walking on a treadmill and you're able to improve VO2 max. So um, we know that this could be helpful for in season in terms of athletes being able to improve their aerobic capacity without actually putting a lot of demand on their muscles and joints. Um, and there's also a lot of good research in terms of biking. Um, so one of the research studies that I found was in a group of older adults with knee OA, and they were doing BFR for 15 minutes, uh, three times a week for eight weeks and their VO two max significantly improved as well as having increased quad strength and hypertrophy. So again, what other, what other, um, exercises or stimulus can you get where you're actually gaining quad strength and, uh, hypertrophy just using a bike. So I thought that was pretty useful. Yeah, no, that's, and just coming from my just particular background of, of running. And when I was more towards college, really focusing on VO2 max, the all, I mean, it's to be able to pick up 11, increase your VO2 max by 11% by just walking is, I, I mean, I literally have no idea how that's possible, but I mean, cause I always think heart rate up like that kind of exercise would be what does it. So that's super interesting. Um, and something that you could really use when somebody is unable to, like you said, handle higher impact or, um, particularly if their sports primarily aerobic, they can still essentially try to stay in shape aerobically, um, without stressing their tissues too much. Um, so have you, have you had anybody that you would actually use this on, or is this more something that you've just seen in the research that, um, sort of adds an extra benefit to BFR. Yeah. I've used it with a few ACLs early on. Um, I can remember one instance where they're like four or five weeks out and they were doing a whole bunch of walking around school and they came in with their knees, super swollen and achy. So what we did, we just set them on the bike for 10 to 15 minutes with, uh, the limb occlusion at like 60 to 70%. And we just had them pedal. So she was on the bike for that certain amount of time just to get some movement, get some blood flow. And, um, like we'll talk about later, decreasing her pain. 
that's one instance. And then I've also used it as like a warm up for specific tendinopathies. So I think this is a really good use of time in terms of getting a person on a bike for five, 10 minutes, getting a whole bunch of blood flow to that area, uh, maybe decreasing their pain before you start loading them up heavy in terms of pr producing a little bit of pain, especially for tendinopathy. Yeah, it definitely seems to check a lot of boxes um, uh, in regards to all the adaptations that it can produce. Um, so like you said, with pain, how does BFR help with pain? Yeah, so this is pretty much newer research from Luke Hughes and Steven Patterson. Uh, so there's a couple, a couple ways in terms of how BFR actually modulates and reduces pain. Uh, so we'll get into a few of the pathways right now. So one is exercise-induced stimulation of the endogenous opioid system. So uh, increase in blood flow restriction with exercise can increase endogenous opioids. Um, another one is called the conditioned pain modulation. So you're pretty much providing a little bit of pain or noxious stimulus to an area to decrease pain in a different area. So BFR isn't the most comfortable thing in the world. Um, so if you're dealing with a little bit of pain, say in your knee or your Achilles or your ankle, and you start BFR, there's going to be some type of pain modulation there. Uh, as well as another thing that I thought was pretty interesting, um, the earlier recruitment of type two muscle fibers. So the stronger fast twitch muscle fibers during BFR also helps with the exercise induced hypoalgesia, similar to that of high intensity strength training. So we know that exercise or high intensity exercise decreases pain response. And so this is a good way to simulate a high intensity strength exercise and decrease pain. No, I think that's a good, this part is important because particularly when you're describing, like we talked about earlier, when you're trying to explain to the patient that it's going to, it can be quite uncomfortable if you're doing it right to a degree. Um, one of the ways to sort of explain the benefit of it being uncomfortable is that it can help reduce the pain at the injured site. Um, and then like the other, the other, uh, example you gave was if someone's coming in with knee pain, for example, you can use this aerobically, um, or, or just in the beginning with lower load exercise to help produce, um, or help produce pain to then possibly be able to load them up, um, you know, at least for the short term. So, yeah, I think that this is one of the bigger things and I've experienced this myself and it truly was because it just, it's pretty rough to have on and do the, that typical 30, 15, 15, 15, that when you take it off, you feel, you just feel pretty good. It doesn't last forever, but it lasts you long enough to probably get a good session. in. Yeah. They say that there's an acute pain reduction for up to like 45 minutes, almost like isometrics and tendinopathy, same type of deal with BFR. So that could be something where if, if someone comes in with a decent amount of pain, you can do a couple of BFR exercises to reduce it and allow them to get on with their normal session for the next 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. No. So I think that's, that's a great, uh, uh, purpose to use it for. Um, I guess the last little special topic we have, and this is something I've seen very rarely, um, is passive BFR. So what, what does passive BFR mean and what are the benefits of using it? Yeah. So another name for the passive BFR is ischemic preconditioning. And so this is a different setup than what we were talking about earlier with the strength training or the aerobic exercise. So what ischemic preconditioning is, the protocol is 
three to four sets of five minutes at a high limb occlusion percentage. So typically 90 to 100% with three minutes of reperfusion between each set. So five minutes of 100% occlusion, three minutes of rest, cycled three to four times. And this is great for if you're seeing someone day one after ACL and the surgeon's like, okay, start using VFR, but they can't really do much. Like they still have a quad lag. They still have poor quad control. This is a great technique to use with the goal of decreasing like disuse atrophy or reducing disuse atrophy. So a lot of times I'll put a NMES unit on during this ischemic preconditioning to get some muscle stimulation, even if it's just the NMES unit doing it with that high limb occlusion pressure to, again, just reduce that atrophy and start getting that muscle going. So is this something that you've used commonly? I guess the only, the only part about being able to use it on like a post-op day one is a lot of times you don't see them on post-op day one. Um, so is this something that you would use beyond that or once they can start to obviously like, you know, perform quad sets, straight leg raise and stuff, you're not going to use passive BFR at that point. No, if they can move and exercise with BFR, I won't use ischemic preconditioning. Um, but I've used it as like a, a recovery tool. So have you seen the Normatec recovery boots? Mm -hmm. Have you seen those? Yeah. It's kind of the same idea as that. So after a super hard session or a super hard sprint session, um, I've put this on um, their surgical limb, their ACL reconstruction limb, and just have them sit there in the clinic two to three cycles of that five minutes on, three minutes off as just a recovery tool when we didn't have like Normatec boots. Um, and I know I've, I've heard on some different podcasts in terms of NFL, NBA, they're using uh, ischemic preconditioning as a, like a warm up and like a potentiation effect to increase their muscle strength or sprints or whatever that they're getting ready for. So there's, there's a lot more research on it. I would definitely advise people to check it out um, because that's definitely a hot topic right now is that ischemic preconditioning. Yeah, it seems like the the BFR research is like can just continuing to unfold as it's used more and more, um, which is great because it's again it's an active modality I guess you could say that really has real effects on a lot of the goal adaptations we're trying to have with post op patients or just patients in pain in general. So, um, is there anything else that you want to touch on in regards to the special topics? Um, and then it looks like we have a little bit of a um, how it can be used in, in a patient that's had an ACL reconstruction. So yeah, let's talk about the ACL study. This was a study performed by Luke Hughes and we'll, we'll post this in the show notes. So the idea of the study was to compare the effectiveness of BFR, low low training versus high low training after ACL reconstruction. So this was a eight week resistance training study using the leg press as the intervention. And prior to starting the single leg leg press, they wanted each patient to be at least two weeks post-op with the stitches removed, be able to weight bear on their leg for at least five seconds without increasing pain, um, have their knee range motion be at least zero to 90, um, have them perform a straight leg raise without any type of extension lag and have minimal effusion in their knee. So the protocol was two times a week over an eight week period of using single leg leg press. 
And in terms of finding the appropriate load, each group performed a 10 RM strength test to determine the loads used throughout the, the study. The BFR group utilized the same type of protocol that we were talking about earlier, the 30, 15, 15, 15, at 30% of their 1RM and 80% limb occlusion pressure. The high load group performed three sets of 10 at 70% of their 1RM with a 30 second rest between sets to help mimic the BFR group. If the athlete or the patient was able to complete all sets and reps in two subsequent sessions, they increase the load by 10%. And I think that's pretty important too, because a lot of, a lot of times I've seen clinicians just get in the same, the same routine where they use the same load and the athlete's going to say, Oh yeah, that was, that was hard. BFR was hard. And it's going to be hard no matter what, even if you don't use load. So if, if they're able to complete all their sets and reps without failure, you know, that you need to increase the weight to make sure that you're getting the actual response that you want. Um, so getting on with the study, uh, they did that for four weeks and then they retested their 10 RM at week four. So again, I would definitely recommend if you're using this in long-term rehab, I would definitely retest their, their five or 10 rep max as you're going to make sure that you're getting that specific strength and hypertrophy stimulus that you want. So in terms of actually getting their 10 RM, what they did was start at a predicted 80% of their 10 RM. And then every time they completed all the reps, they added five kilos and then just continued going until they actually hit their true 10 RM. The measurements that they were, or the things that they're actually assessing were quad strength. And they did this via isokinetic machine, muscle hypertrophy. So they measured halfway between the ASIS and the superior patella um, to get the max cross-sectional area of the vastus lateralis. They used the Y balance test to measure single leg strength control. They measured pain, range of motion, and then a fusion using the circumference around the mid patella area. And the results were that the BFR group had significant improvements in self-reported outcome measures, as well as a wide balance test performance. And they also had a significant decrease in knee pain and swelling compared to the high load group. And both groups had significant improvements in muscle strength and hypertrophy. So overall using the BFR with the low load leg press improved all of their specific measurements with less pain and less swelling. So this is reading this study definitely helped change the way that I use BFR with acute like post-op patients. Like I was saying, making sure that you're able to measure a specific 10 RM to get appropriate loads as well as making sure that you're progressing them appropriately. Yeah, I think it's something that's hard to deny that it works. And um, I, I think similar to how it's been talked about using NMES early on and post-op, particularly knee patients to get the quad back, um, BFR is almost becoming one of those things that if you have access to it, you should probably use it early on to um, just jump on the early loading and trying to get the desired effects of of higher load strength training. So that study sort of sends that message home. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on as far as BFR goes at this point? Obviously it's not a full encompassing thing, but we can attach um, some of the things that we use to prepare for this. And uh, if, that's, if that covers it, um, who would you refer people to to learn more about it? Yeah, so I'm a little bit biased here just because 
I listened to the podcast and this is who I was trained by, I would definitely check out Owens Recovery Science and Johnny Owens. I think they pretty much are the gold standard for BFR and all the literature that they're putting out. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, Luke Hughes and Steven Patterson, they're in the UK. They are also putting out a lot of good research on BFR. I think with their focus now on the effects of BFR on pain. So those are the, the three people that I would definitely take a look at if you're looking into BFR. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. And like I said before, we'll attach those documents that we use, um, or at least at least give you links to them um, for your further reading, since it's impossible to cover all of it, particularly the, the physiology of it. Um, but that should wrap it up, I think, um, unless James, you have anything else to add? No, I think it's almost like a cheat code in terms of physical therapy, being able to start loading people as early as possible. So if your clinic doesn't have it, I would definitely look into the research and talk to whoever's in charge of ordering equipment, see if you can get that in the clinic. All right. Thanks for listening to the Athletes First Performance Podcast. Uh, Make sure to check out the show notes and let us know if you have any questions. We'll catch you in a week or two. Thanks for listening to the Athletes First Performance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode or future episodes, please be sure to reach out on social media or our website. Both links can be found in the show notes.